Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The following on podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. Before we kick off the show, I just wanted to take a moment to remind you that the ICC Men's Cricket T20 World Cup Final is taking place in Barbados this summer. This, by default, gives all of my fellow cricket fanatics the perfect excuse to go and book a holiday to Barbados in June and experience firsthand the euphoric atmosphere at the Kensington Oval, the cricket mecca of the Caribbean. If the cricket alone isn't enough to tempt you, then let me be the one to remind you that a trip to Barbados can also include leisurely strolls along the breathtaking coastline, mouth-watering flavours of the world-class Bayesian cuisine, and of course, plenty of rum. Head to visitbarbados.org forward slash cricket today to book the trip of a lifetime to Barbados, the best place to be a cricket fan. Hello and welcome to the Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2. I'm John Norman in Auckland with two familiar voices making up the collective this week. Jared Kimber in London and Neil Manthorpe in Cape Town. And tonight we're taking a trip down memory lane with no cricket being played anywhere in the world. A chance to remind, remember and rediscover past pleasures as we await new ones to take their place. So sit back and enjoy as we ask some seriously big questions like... What's the funniest thing you've ever seen on a cricket ground? You're listening to The Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2. Thanks for joining us. Well, welcome to the show and uh, a big hello to Neil Manthorpe in Cape Town, Jared Kimber uh, back in London. Uh, let's get underway. First off, though, guys, we're, uh, we're coming to the listeners from uh, three very distinct and different uh, countries and continents. Uh, Manners, give us a little idea of... Uh, uh, something cricket-related that's happened in South Africa in the last seven days. Thanks, John. We had our first press conference by by Zoom. Uh, there were 38 journalists, which is more journalists than we've ever had at any South African cricket press conference before. Um, uh, we spoke to Graham Smith, uh, the um, acting director of cricket, and uh, Jacques Fall, the acting chief executive. Um, Jacques Fall said that uh, the players wouldn't be expected to take a pay cut, which was uh, interesting. He said there's enough money in the in the piggy bank to get through this year. And also we had the news that uh, all of the players who came back from India from their three-match one-day tour uh, which they didn't bowl a ball in, remember? They uh, they had a, a contorted journey back and none of them have tested positive uh, for, for symptoms. Those who were tested have uh, tested negative. So as far as they're concerned, they're in, in the clear. What about you, Jared? What's going on back home? Uh, they had their first uh, Zoom interview here. What do you call it? Press conference? Uh, I, it was kind of weird. It was just Joe Root looking at a lot of random men as much as anything. Uh, but I think, I suppose the big item is that England players have decided to donate some of their money. 
which which is fine and I respect them for doing so but I just feel like there are other richer people who have longer careers who should be donating money at this time rather than professional sportsmen who play for 15 years and afterwards really struggle with their lives but uh, anyway that's that's the main story I suppose that England players are donating money towards uh, good causes during this global pandemic well, here in New Zealand, uh, the New Zealand players aren't donating any money, not yet anyway. It's come at a really fortuitous time, actually, because the season has just ended. So they've got uh, a few months before it starts again. It probably saved New Zealand from losing in Australia against Australia again. So they could kind of finish the season on a high. Um, but word from David White. Uh, the uh, chief exec here in New Zealand cricket is that uh, every single member of the uh, non-playing setup has got to take all of their holiday basically in the next three months. So, um, you know, you're going to be at home, but you're going to be on holiday. Uh, but uh, apart from that, I think New Zealand have actually probably escaped slightly better than uh, back home because, of course, actually there's no cricket. In fact, one of the questions, because they also had a Zoom interview here as well. And one of the questions was, has it actually done New Zealand cricket a favour not to be playing cricket because playing cricket costs you so much money. That is the mad world of cricket that we live in, where it actually benefits a cricket board not to be playing cricket. Anyway, um, let's get on with the show. A very familiar voice, Barry Wilkinson, um, taking part in the Cricket Collective. And the first question this week is... First cricket memory. Okay, Manners, uh, let's start with you. Your first ever cricket memory. And uh, I'm sure Jarrah's going to get in with a was it in black and white joke. But mine <laughs> was in black and white. More of that later. But yeah, first cricket memory. My first memory that really, when I knew that I, I was, I don't know, probably destined to either be a cricket tragic or spend a life uh, in the game um, was when I was 13, shortly after I'd returned to the UK, um, and it was 1984, 84, 85, and the West Indies, no, it was 84, the West Indies were touring uh, England, and um, I was very unfamiliar with the country, having grown up in South Africa, but I said, I, I've got to go, I've got to go and see, uh, and my mother said, okay, fine, and she packed me some sandwiches, and uh, I took the train to Old Trafford, and I think it was day four or day five, um, and, and that's, so that's the memory that comes crashing into my head when I think your first real serious cricket memory. What about yours, Jared? You weren't even born in 84, 85, were you? I was born in 80. I was four. I'm not as old as Manners, to be fair. Um, I remember like mucking around at the Camberfield Cricket Club in Melbourne uh, up until, you know, until they got rid of me, really. Um, and then, but my first memory of professional cricket was actually going to a Shield game, watching Victoria and New South Wales, which I think was a Boxing Day game because they sometimes played the Shield game as the Boxing Day game, not the Test match. So I went to watch that, and the first ball of the day was Mike Whitney. Do you remember Mike Whitney? He had the big sort of afro of curly hair, left-arm fast bowler. He came steaming into bowl, and I was really excited. But first day of proper cricket, and Mike Whitney fell over first ball. And it's <laughs> kind of been like that ever since, my uh, watching cricket career. Well, my first cricket memory, and... Um... I mean, you guys have picked up on on actually going to the cricket, but it's funny how your mind plays tricks in you. And I'm not exactly sure what my first memory is because I was six when Ian Botham, Headingley and all of that. And I can't I can't work out whether I watched it at the time 
or whether I've just watched it so many times since then that I've kind of convinced myself I definitely did watch it. But one, I think, is my very first memory. And we had a black and white TV. We didn't have a TV until I was about five. And then my mum and dad bought a black and white TV. And my first memory, I swear this is true, was of Graham Dilley's blonde hair as he walked down the steps onto the ground, bat in hand, in that series. I don't know if that is my first memory or not, but if I watched it live, I definitely saw Graham Dilley doing that. And it must have been there or thereabouts. I'm not 100% sure, though. So if pushed, my first memory, cricket memory, is standing at the top of the stairs in my parents' house and reciting the touring Indian team of 1982. And the names, I knew the whole whole first 11. Vensaka, Viswanath, Gavaska, Kapildev, all of those names. But the one name that stepped out, that really leapt off the page for me and still does now, was Maiden Lal. And it just was incongruous next to all those other names. And as a seven-year-old kid, I couldn't quite get my head around it. And even now, Maiden Lao takes me back to uh, being a seven-year-old, standing at the top of the stairs, going through the Indian touring team. So there you go. Okay, then, um, what's next? Best cricket memory. Jared? It was probably being at Afghanistan's first World Cup game. Our, uh, the, the Women's World Cup final was incredible. And the most recent one, I'm sure, was probably the same. But I think I remember seeing Afghanistan. I went out of the press box and it was in Canberra, so, you know, random place. I don't know how many Afghanistanis even live around there, but there was suddenly a thousand of them for this game. And the first ball, the, the, the atmosphere and the way that the fans got involved, you realise that this was something huge for the, the country, the, the people. And the first ball, just this huge cheer erupts. And there was another cricket and uh, sorry, another cricket rider next to me, and he sort of looked over and he said, "Wow, these guys are excited." That was a dot ball, and listen to the cheer. And I said, "It wasn't a dot ball. That was a wide." They just cheered a, a wide because it was their first wide um, in in a World Cup, and uh, you know you don't get moments like that in cricket that often. And they were absolutely ecstatic all day. Even when they lost, all their fans danced out of the ground. They were just happy to finally have a national unifying force a team to get behind so for me that's my you know best cricket memory that's pretty good um, i'm not sure what my favorite uh, cricket memory it's nothing as profound as that uh, there's been so many amazing moments over the years from a professional perspective uh, that first odi and dan buller where, where both of you were present we only got 15 overs but at the end of that day i i, I felt felt uh, pretty proud um, all the days watching cricket with my dad, all the uh, the glorious moments, 2005 and all that. But I think there's one moment when I've felt this burst of pure happiness, unmatched by any other moment watching cricket. And that was in 2010 on a beautiful day in Adelaide. It was England's morning. Um, there was that run out of Katic from Jonathan Trott. Oh, a bit of a mix-up. Can he hit him? Yeah! He can. Kanich is gone without facing the ball. There was uh, two catches from Graham Swan, I think. Jimmy Anderson getting rid of uh, Ponting and Clark. Ponting's on strike. Here's Anderson.
to the next swan. A scene for me where four years previously I'd seen a seven-hour horror show where Australia had come back from being giving up 550 in first innings to bowling England out on that final day to suddenly, just a month or two before I was going to get married, working full-time for TalkSport on the tour as well. And I just had a moment of absolute in-the-moment zen. And I think that was probably my uh, my best cricket memory of many. What about you, Manners? <laughs> I like that one. Um, okay, I'll be a little selfish um, initially and tell you that that pure playing joy, and this was unmatched by anything else I ever did on the field, which was very undistinguished. But inter-house cricket at school, um, I happened to be, uh, it, my year in my house was the absolute epitome of non-cricketing boys. Uh, there were two of us who could, who could play the game, me and a chap called Rupert Moon. And um, we literally opened the batting and the bowling and then changed pads and kept wicket to each other as well. And we were playing against the very best cricket cricketing school, uh, cricketing house in the school. Um, they had like five first team players. Um, they had all the stars, and it was it was basically me and Rupert against against H House, and and I took five for twenty eight, and then absolutely slogged wildly we were chasing 128 and i made 46 not out and we beat them um it was hilarious we got thrashed in the semi-final by uh, the the second best house but otherwise it's the mcg victory south africa against um, australia in 2008. here's mitchell johnson he's bowling to the villiers 99. and that will do it what a hundred is about as good as it gets for a batsman. That is the sort of test match you dream of as a player. Take on the world champions in their home turf and to not just compete but to win a game like this and to contribute as he has. That's a test match he will remember for the rest of his life. You know, there are very few frontiers that haven't been crossed in international cricket and South Africa had been trying to beat Australia in Australia for a century. Uh, you know, they'd, they'd had 10 tours down there, never won. So the, I think that would probably be my greatest cricketing memory, my happiest moment of my career, probably, even when it comes to an end. Because, you know, chased down 414 in Perth, and then they were 6-0 down at half-time in that test match, came back from absolutely nowhere. I mean, they'd only just passed the follow-on seven wickets down and then of course Dale Stain made 76 batting at number nine and then took 10 wickets in the game so that's that's undoubtedly my fa favourite professional memory. Brilliant stuff well look, plenty more of that to come on the Cricket Collective uh, we're going to find out the worst cricket moment first cricketing heroes and plenty more you're listening to Talk Sport 2. Listening to the Cricket Collective here on Talksport 2. Myself, John Norman in Auckland, Neil Manthorpe in Cape Town, and Jared Kimber in the UK in London. Okay, lads, uh, first cricket hero. Let's start with you, Jared. Uh, mine's probably Dean Jones, you know, uh, from Melbourne and northern suburbs, and his family's quite well known in that part of town. In fact, Dean Jones's father has a legend around him that he once put a block of ice on a pitch overnight came back and there was a wet spot the next day and uh, I think they called the game off and his team won the final or something so huge 
Jones family thing. And then he's the first player really, in, almost in the world, to take one-day cricket incredibly seriously and think about it and strategize and, uh, you know, ends up playing that innings of 145 against England and uh, the running between wickets and, and everything about Dean Jones. He was the certainly my first cricket hero uh, and they were almost all Victorian. Uh, it didn't occur to me actually that Australia was a big deal till later on. I was uh, grew up watching England during the 80s and there weren't very many Surrey players. In fact, there was uh, very, very few. But for me, during the 80s, it was more, I don't know, I suppose the idiosyncratic kind of cricketers. As a kid, they're the ones you kind of gravitate to, apart from the Ian Bothams and the David Gowers, who, uh, you know, lit up the game personally during the 80s. It was um, it was either Derek Randall um, or Pat Pocock, you know, one of my favourite memories. It may have even been that series you were talking about earlier on. Uh, Manners and Pat Pocock had been brought back into the side against to play against the West Indies. Um, I think it was his first test in about I don't know a million years. Anyway, he was a typical number eleven bat. I think he'd been dismissed without scoring a run in four successive innings, and he was batting with Alan Lamb. And Lammy had a brilliant record against the West Indies, as you all know. I think seven of his eleven centuries came against the, you know, the best attacks in the, in the history of the game and Lamb was in his 90s Pocock went out there and all the interest was whether Pocock could stick around long enough for Lamb to get his century anyway Lamb's on 98 or something and Pocock takes a single and he holds his bat aloft like Lamb is about to and takes the applause from the crowd not that there's any applause and for an eight or nine-year-old kid, I thought that was the funniest thing I'd ever seen in my life. So people like him were my first heroes. Pat Pocock, Derek Randall, and the man that I used to pretend to be in the back garden, my first proper hero, Bob Taylor, behind the stumps. So uh, they were my three. What about you, uh, Manners? I mean, the obvious ones are Mike Proctor and Graham Pollock and uh, and Clive Rice and, you know, those, the, the iconic South African players of the era. But because I went to high school in England. I, I also um, was a very, very keen follower of Surrey and the, the first two signatures I, I ever got, Graham Roop and Alan Butcher. So that the team of that era, Trevor Jesty, you know, they, they were, I used to look up to them um, enormously. And then of course the, the crossover players between South Africa and England. So Bob Woolmer and Robin Jackman. So that, that era, those, uh, um, it's my first. If I had to single out one one cricketing hero, it'd probably be Robin Jackman. Okay, then worst cricket moment. I mean, I've got uh, I've got plenty. In fact, I'll start off with this one. You know, I was just having to think about this earlier on. But my worst cricket moment in my mind, I was about thirteen. You know, I I actually gave up the game twice. I actually came to the conclusion that it caused me so much pain. I was I, I was done with it. And one of my most one of the times it occurred was the famous uh, Old Trafford Test, 1993. First ball in Test cricket in England for Shane Warne. And he's done it. He started off with the most beautiful delivery. Gadding has absolutely no idea what has happened to it. He still doesn't know. I don't know if Jared really gets this, but Manners, you'll, you'll definitely get this. But very often with cricket, when you're watching your team, you kind of lose. You don't think you're going to win 
you just want to be able to go to sleep at night dreaming that your team on day five might somehow miraculously get themselves out of a hole. You just want to be able to dream that that last night before the crushing defeat happens. So England had battled throughout the first this first test match, first Ashes test of the summer. Uh, it was even Stevens after first innings. Australia were 250 off of five. England just about still in it. And then they ended up with 450 or something. England needed 500 to win. Never going to happen, right? But Gooch was Gooch and he was batting away. Atherton stuck around, but he was out. But if we could only get to the end of day four, one wicket down, I could go to bed dreaming that England could somehow survive in that first test match. That's all I wanted. So as the overs ticked down, I was watching the cricket and my mum and dad were calling me into dinner. They kept yelling at me, come and watch dinner. But I couldn't go to dinner until I'd seen the final overs bowled out. And all I was doing was hoping beyond all hope, England were gatting a gooch at the crease, could just get down Get to stumps, 130-odd for one, and I could just go to bed and dream of a miracle. And what happened? And bowled him, and bowled him. Well, well, well. And that was it. I gave up the game for about a week. That was my worst memory. And there's been some bad ones. What about you then? Uh, what about you, Jared? Uh, mine was Matthew Elliott. The, uh, I obviously made some runs in the 97 Ashes in England, but he's the best sort of pure batsman I ever saw. But he, he played in that era where every Australian batsman was incredible. Like, you know, the ones you haven't even heard of, like Martin Love, uh, were just next level. And Matthew Elliott finally got his chance. I came into the Australian team and, and he, I think Ian Bishop had worked him out a little bit with a couple of incredible pitching on, off stump, swinging back in, getting him out, LBW. There was one innings against the West Indies where he finally looked like he was flowing and like the Matthew Elliott that I had told everyone about. And then in that innings, Matthew Elliott was running with Mark Waugh and they somehow ended up just running into each other. And Mark Waugh got out of it and got to the other end and Matthew Elliott twisted his knee. So he went down in, in a lump and then because he knew he was going to get run out, even though he was injured, he tried to like hurl himself over the line, which probably ruined his knee more. Um, and that was the moment I thought, he's just not going to make it. If He's literally running into his other Australian players. There's, there's always going to be something that holds him back. And he really struggled to ever get into the team properly after that. And he had one last tour really in, in the West Indies. And uh, Kirtley and Courtney were all over him. And then I think he played one more test like in June or something in Darwin. And, uh, and that was it. And I remember when he, when he banged into Mark Waugh, that was about the time I went, Matthew Elliott's just going to be someone for me. The rest of the world's never really going to see much of him. What about you, Manners? That, that'd be the 99 World Cup semi-final. Who's not on strike? There it is. They go, this'll be out, surely. Ah, it's out. It's going to be one out. Oh, that's it. South Africa out. Donald didn't run. I cannot believe it. Australia go into the World Cup final. Ridiculous running with two balls to go. Donald didn't go. Klusner come. What a disappointing end for South Africa. That was the, the, the one time. I mean, there have been so many disasters on the field. <laughs> but that was the one time where I literally felt like I was having a 
an out-of-body experience. It, my 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 skin felt like it belonged <laughs> to somebody else. The the my eyeballs were watering at the back rather than at the front. I mean, it was all. I don't think that I could ever be taken through quite such a a wide range of emotions from elation to despair. Lance Clues and I hit those two fours in the last over, um, and then in in some ways, you know, that was an it was an anaesthetic to me, which the effects of which have not yet fully worn off. You know, um, <laughs> when I, when I see um, highs and lows on a, on a cricket field, and and I've seen many, there's just still a little part of me that says that's all right. You've 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 seen there. You've been higher. You've been lower. Um, uh, but but actually, just a year later, I'm sitting on on the floor on the corridor on the 14th floor of the Elangani Hotel on the Durban waterfront seafront with Gary Kirsten, and he is holding his head and saying, the world will never be the same again. How little we, we knew. Um, but at the time, it honestly felt world-changing. We can't end on, the, on a low. Let's quickly whip through your funniest moment at a cricket match, starting with you, Jared. Do you remember that Trent Bridge test? It was um, England-India. And it was like an <laughs> yeah. absolute road of a wicket. It was one of the worst test matches I've ever been to. I think Jimmy Anderson made 80-odd. Mohammed Shami yeah. might have made 50-odd. Like every number 11 was making runs. That's how bad the pitch was. And then on the last day out of nowhere, Alistair Cook comes on the bowl. After an entire lifetime of just watching him nudge the ball on the leg side um, and leave the ball outside off stump, he suddenly like turns into this performance artist and starts bowling in different <laughs> styles. And he comes in as Bob Willis and he like drags one down the leg side. Oh, he's given it, he's got a wicket. Wow, would you believe it? Strangled down the leg side. Cook is loving it. It was just, it felt like after five days of like punching us in the face, the test match just decided to give us a little hug on the way out the door. It was incredible. That was ridiculous. What about you, Manners? On tour in India, um, it was uh, a seven-match... Uh, it was a triangular, actually, with India and Australia. And um, I, well, I was supposed to commentate ball by ball with my fellow commentator, Gerald de Kock, who became seriously ill um, and had to have surgery just before we left for India. And there was too late to make contingency plans, so we went ahead, and I was going to do ball by ball commentary on South African radio by myself, which was daunting. It was daunting to think that just Gerald and I were going to do the whole series by ourselves, but that was that was the point. Anyway, so we start, and Bob Woolmer's the coach, and he says, you can't do... You, you, that's ridiculous. You, you, I, look, I tell you what, I'll do the first 10 overs with you. I said, thanks, Bob, that'll be that'll be fantastic. And and then, you know what, depending on how it's going, perhaps you could send somebody up um, to, to when you go back after 10 overs. He said, yeah, yeah, that's fine. No, no problem at all. And it's going really well. Lance Klusner uh, was used as a pinch hitter and he's on his way to 100 um, in just his second game. Bob goes, disappears, and a few overs later, Alan Donald walks in, who's playing in the game. And uh, he says, I'll do, um, I'll, do, I'll do five or six overs with you. Anyway, it's AD's first time behind the microphone. It's going really well. And he's really getting into it. And he doesn't want to leave because Lance Klusner's smashing the Indian attack all over the place. And then he gets out and there's a clutter of wickets in, as we get it, approach the last 10 overs. And, uh, and AD's been, he's been with me now for 30 overs and he's doing brilliantly. And, he's, and he says, 
we've lost a few wickets now and Zulu's gone and we've got a bit of a longer tail. Um, if we actually... I'm next in. So he had oh, to mate. disappear off and get padded up. I, I don't want to have to follow that, to be honest. I'll keep mine very brief. It's not as good as that. But my uh, two funniest moments are standing in the upper tier. Half of me was celebrating, me and my dad. Half of us were celebrating and the other half laughing hysterically at the sheer nonsense of a bowl-off between uh, Surrey, who couldn't hit the stumps, and uh, Warwickshire, who couldn't hit the stumps, uh, culminated in Tim Murta running around the outfield with his tro- top off, being pursued by the entire Surrey cricket team uh, under floodlights. That was pretty funny. But t- 2006 at the Oval again, this time in uh, what is now the OCS stand, and it was a game against Pakistan. It was a really weird day. Uh, the game, of course, was called off at tea. Nobody knew what was going on. Drink had been had. And then at the end of the game, Mark Nicholas and uh, Jeffrey Boycott decided to do their piece to camera right in front of the fans who had been drinking all day. And uh, they were getting absolute pelters. And that was before the wind blew Jeffrey Boycott's hat off. And he spent the next uh, couple of minutes running after the hat, which kept getting picked up in the wind and hurled around in front of about 4,000 very drunk uh, and very amused cricket fans. So they're my two funniest moments that I've seen in the cricket match. Uh, Don't go anywhere. We've got plenty more. You're listening to The Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. The following on podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. If your passion for travel is on par with your passion for cricket, then I have some excellent news. The ICC Men's Cricket T20 World Cup Final is being hosted in Barbados this June, which makes it the perfect destination for your summer holidays this year. To make the most of your trip, you can also experience eight matches from the series in Barbados, including England against Scotland and England against Australia. In under a month's time, you could be spending your days exploring the vibrant streets of Bridgetown, drinking rum in the sunshine 
and experiencing exotic Bayesian delicacies in the culinary capital of the Caribbean, there truly is something for everyone. There's no need to wait a second longer. Head to visitbarbados.org forward slash cricket today to book the trip of a lifetime to Barbados, truly the best place to be a cricket fan. Uh, you're listening to the Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2, thanks to the Institute of Cricket. OK, guys, um, Manners, favourite piece of cricket commentary? Oh, well, I'd have to be, I'd have to go with Charles Fortune, um, who was a school teacher. He was, he was an icon of South African radio um, and I used to listen to in, uh, in the 80s. He was famously um, cantankerous and, uh, and grumpy and totally averse to, to progress or the modernization of, of anything. And, and, you know, I remember him chuntering about 50 over cricket not being the real thing. But he, he was a very, very fine broadcaster. And the, the, as part of progress, we had commentaries uh, coming from all of the three grounds going during the Curry Cup, rather than just commentary on one feature game. Um, and this obviously entailed doing a, a whip round of the, the three ga- games um, on SAFM or Radio South Africa, as it used to be there, in which the commentators were required to give, you know, a perfectly normal 30 or 40 second pricey. And Charles, unfortunately, went on a little long um, and just couldn't get his head around the idea of doing a 30 or 40 second update. Um, so he'd do three or four minutes and everybody else had to do 10 <laughs> seconds to try it <laughs> and um, <laughs> to try and catch up. And I, re- I remember uh, the producer saying, Charles, look, seriously, um, you know, uh, we, we, it, it's got to be quicker. You've, you've got to be quicker. He didn't take it well at all. And then the next time we went round the grounds, it, it was uh, right down to Newlands now, Western Province against Transvaal, Charles Fortune. It's 38 for four. <laughs> Brilliant stuff. Right, Jared, what about you? So when I was a kid, I had a poster up on my wall, and this, this is what the poster said. He started off with the most beautiful delivery. Gatting has absolutely no idea what has happened to it. He still doesn't know. And that was the Gatting ball <laughs> to, to Shane Warne. So it was such a big thing in Australia that there was a poster that I think it was Victorian <laughs> Cricket who made this poster too. It wasn't like a newspaper. Literally, the Cricket Board put out this poster just of Richie describing uh, the Warne ball <laughs> after it happened. Uh, so that for me, and I think it used to be, um, there, there used to be a poster of it somewhere around in, in one of the England grounds, but they took it down as well. But just an incredible moment of commentary from, from Richie, of which there were the many. I mean, maybe Richie's best effort was him absolutely obliterating the Australian team after the underarm incident. But uh, it's the Gatting one. It's the pause when, when he watches Gatting for a second and then just says... He still doesn't know. I, I think, and this is the power of cricket commentary, isn't it? When asked what's my favourite ever cricket memory or my favourite Ashes memory or whatever, my instinct is always to go back to the same moment in my life. And for me, following cricket has always been a very personal thing because none of be, none of my mates none of my mates even like sport, let alone cricket. And there's nothing more solitary than listening to cricket commentary from the other side of the world at 
you know, four o'clock in the morning when you really should be asleep because you've got to get up in the morning to either go to work or go to school. And that's where I found myself in 1998 uh, in the pit in the middle of the night, pitch black in my bed on my own listening to TMS. I'm not sure who the commentators were, but I guess it must have been Brian Johnson and, and I'm not sure who else. Anyway, England were just about trying to eke out something approaching a target. It was the, their second innings at the MCG, last wicket partnership. And the commentators described <laughs> described Alan Mullally walking to the crease. And England only led by about 150 by this point. It was, it was, it was really pushing it to think that they could, you know, push it through for a victory. But anyway, Alan Mullally then walks to the crease and... The way they describe Alan Mullally, who again was an old school number 11, was nothing, something akin to a bloke you'd find sitting on a haystack with a straw hat on, with a big bit of hay sticking out of his mouth. And he was coming up against Glenn McGrath, the best bowler in the world. And he had an absolutely no chance. Australia were going to be faced with 150 and they were going to wrap it up, and no problem. The commentators had given up, everyone had given up. And then Alan Mullally just smashed Glenn McGrath, of all people, the last person in the world who would ever find being smashed over his head for four. And he didn't do it once, he did it twice. If you cut 12,000 miles to my bedroom in the pitch black, it's about three o'clock in the morning, and the tears are rolling down my cheeks. I, when I laugh a lot, my nose gets blocked and I can't breathe properly. And that's what I was doing. I was... I don't think I've ever enjoyed cricket more than that moment. Anyway, turned off the radio after Alan Mullally or whoever gets out. Wake up in the morning and hey, presto, Dean Headley's run through the Aussies and England win by 14 runs. And that partnership, well, if it hadn't been for that partnership, then uh, possibly England wouldn't have won that test match. Moving on, fastest bowler ever seen. Jared, you must have seen a few. Yeah, I've seen Shah Bakhtar. I saw Wazam Akram and Wakao Yunus a couple of times at full flight as well. But I think the fastest spell I've ever seen is Sean Tate. Almost 160. That is unbelievable slats. That's express. 159 clicks. That's Jeff Thompson. That's Shoah Bakhtar. That's as fast as you see the ball bowl. Sean Tate sort of just came in and wanged it. And he was incredibly quick. There's one game where he was playing in a one-day final in Australia. And there was like... 2,000 people at the ground, maybe 10,000 people watching it. Uh, he ended up taking, I think it was six for 38. And I think there were 17 wides in that. And I did a really <laughs> long piece where I talked to almost every batsman that faced him in that game. And uh, Phil Jakes was, was there. And one of the other batsmen, I think it was Corey Richards, went out to bat with Phil Jakes. And he said, oh, he's bowling fast, isn't he? And Phil Jakes just sort of took him and grabbed him with each arm. And he said, it, it, it's different gravy. This isn't normal. Um, and you watch that entire spell, uh, you know, and he's going up against New South Wales, so there's some proper players facing him. And it, it looks like children fa facing a quick bowler. And it was probably Sean Tate at his absolute quickest. He was terrifying. And I remember seeing him at the MCG with the wicketkeeper so far back, it just seemed wrong. What about you, Manners? I'll have to go with Alan Donald because in the... In the late 80s, when I started my broadcasting career, I, I was assigned to Warwickshire. And 
it was, I suppose, mixing with the with the opposition and having those conversations and being up close and personal. And I was far more aware of the aura that that Donald had than than he was. We're we're the same age, but he was just oblivious to the fact that that you know the opposition would all be looking at the warm ups to see how he was looking. Um, the batsmen would all be sort of you know every now and then they'd go like, "How's AD bowling? Is is he all right? Is he going to play?" And he was just consistently quick. I know that there's no question that Shoaib Akhtar and a few, Sean Tate, a few others have probably bowled faster than Alan Donald um, and had faster spells. But, but you know, Alan, Alan bowled fast for 10 years, um, consistently fast for 10 years. And you know what? I, for one season, a West Indian called Tony Merrick was competing with Alan for the overseas spot at Warwickshire, and he was capable of seriously quick spells. Um, but, but yeah, for consistency and long, longevity with speed, got to be white lightning. I tell you what, we've seen um, two England bowlers in the last 12 months or so, bowl as fast as any I've ever seen. Mark Woods, that spell in, uh, where was it, St Lucia? Oh, God, no, ouch. Now, that's not good. He ducked straight into a ball that wasn't that short, and I think it's hit him in the side of the helmet. Here is Wood. And look at him! Straight through the number 11, middle stump Yorker, Mark Wood has five! In this innings, Mark Wood has become the fastest bowler in England history when you look at average speeds. And then, of course, Joffre Archer at times this summer uh, against uh, the Aussies. But I suppose, again, I've got to go back to... Uh, my youth, really. I remember setting myself the task of trying to see the ball from the moment it left Wacko Eunice's hand playing for Surrey uh, to the moment it reached the batsman. And I, I kept running in and I'd be trying time and time again. And of course, it's, I mean, it's impossible, isn't it? I don't think he's the fastest I've ever seen, but certainly he encapsulated everything that you want from a fast bowler. He seemed to have the hurry up of the batsman. The batsman, you know, with that that in-swinging Yorker that he used to have, used to be almost like more worried about their toes being broken than the stumps. Um, and he carried the hopes of the Surrey team as well. So for me, it's got to be Wacko Eunice. Uh, that brings us to the end of this section. But one last section still to come here on the Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2. So don't go anywhere. listening to the Cricket Collective uh, on Talk Sport 2. Let's get straight back to it. Uh, Manners, uh, you must have seen cricket played in just about every test ground in the world. So what is your favourite? Well, actually, it doesn't have to be a test ground. One day stuff as well. Best place to watch cricket? It's interesting there. I couldn't help but focus in on the word watch cricket um, because I haven't watched cricket for over 20 years. <laughs> as in, As in... Watch it. It's a different experience, isn't it, um, from a commentary box or the press box? or um, And so where would I like to watch cricket? In other words, where would I like to pack a, a, a cool box and, and go and just immerse myself in the experience without worrying about bowling changes and, and bowling figures and keeping my scorecard and, and working? And that would have to be in New Zealand, um, you know, because I... I so admire people who can sit in a plastic bucket seat for seven hours um, to to watch a game of cricket. I I I couldn't do it. 
and, and you know, there are some contests um, that I would I would pay lots of money to want to watch, but I don't know that I could sit in a plastic bucket seat. I'd be one of those people that'd be walking around the concession stalls, um, you know, watching it on TV. Um, if I was to, to watch cricket, I would have to choose the university ground in Dunedin or, or Hamilton or just about anywhere, uh, Basin Reserve, actually, just about any ground in New Zealand. Uh, and I'd take a, a picnic rug, um, you know, some 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 nice some nice snacks and and that's where that absolutely without quite or gall mate it's a bit hot there no no i'd, I'd need the air conditioning <laughs> so new zealand apart from auckland park yeah i know what you mean man as well i think the thing i miss most about cricket is the fact that i can't watch it as a fan as much as i used to and you know growing up in south london the oval was always a, the the county uh, or the ground nearest to me but even watching cricket uh, with friends and family is a relatively new phenomenon for me uh, since the turn of the century, I guess. And one day a year, we'd go and watch the cricket. 2009, last day of the Ashes there. Handshakes. They've done it. They've waited out. They've realised it. Monty Palisar and Jimmy Anderson, 10-11. That was one of my favourite ever moments as a cricket fan. But I've got to agree with you. You know, there's, there's, there's so much difference in all the stadiums around the world you know if you go to the caribbean ken uh, the kensington oval there's just something real stripped back about that place the wreck sitting on the bleachers there when they used to play cricket there i i've i fell in love with the wanderers you know when we were there a couple of months ago i think that is an absolute proper ground gall as well but for me it came down to the basin reserve you know if it's about watching cricket um in a, in a historic venue, in an idyllic spot, great crowds that turns up still to watch Test cricket. I, I struggle to think of a cricket ground that I would pick over the Basin Reserve in Wellington. What about you, Jared? Because I grew up at the MCG, my idea of what a cricket ground is is probably completely different to you guys. So I kind of like the big concrete jungle type um, cricket grounds where most people like things like Adelaide Oval and, you know, these are Gaul, whereas I'm a bit like, no, I, w- I want the big concrete around me. I want it to feel like it's it's an event. Um, so I think with that, yeah, um, Wanketi is an incredible modern stadium, Wanderers, obviously, and I think Wanketi was actually partly based on, 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 on Wanderers. But uh, for me, it's probably Eden Gardens, which is an absolute wreck. But there's something just incredibly grand about the whole thing. You've got to walk through all these gardens to get to it. It's all roped off, so you can't walk straight. So you end up doing, you know, about a five-kilometer walk even, you know, if you get out of your tuk-tuk. And then you get in and all the facilities are falling apart. Uh, you're, you're, going to be, you're going to be stopped by about 19 security officers on the way through. Uh, but once you're in there, it's just... It's huge and it pulses. And I've seen an IPL game there. I've seen um, the T20 um, uh, World Cup final, you know, the Carlos Brathwaite game. Uh, and some other incredible games of cricket. It just, for me, it's, it, it just feels like a, a, a temple of cricket. Um, okay, so if you could bring back one thing about cricket from the past, uh, Jared, what would it be? Oh, I, I've really been struggling with this because there's two things I really want to bring back. First one's so boring but it's back foot, no balls. Yeah, good shout, good shout, go on. <laughs> I think front foot, no balls don't work. I think it's a bad system and I think it it injures bowlers. 
and it's hard for it. Well, it's virtually impossible for an umpire at 90 miles an hour to look down, then look up and make a good decision. So I, I just don't think they work for modern cricket, and I think it was a mistake to bring them in. Um, the other thing is just pitches degrading. I'm not sure uh, we need to use the roller after day one. I'm, I'm happy with covers. I'll, I'll keep covers, but I think once the pitch has been rolled on day one, that's it. Now, from now on, whatever happens to it, happens to it. And we, I want more grubbers, essentially, is what I'm looking for. I'm looking for more Carl Hooper and Nasser Hussein. Can, can we brush it, Jared? You can brush it once a day. <laughs> and between innings? No. <laughs> uh, I love it. Um, I love that. That's great. You know what? I, I would, I, the one thing I w- would say is that I'm a big fan of progress. Um and I and I, I try not to be too much of a traditionalist. So I have to say I spent 30 years learning how to commentate and recognize players under broad brimmed sun hats. And, you know, just from the way they their elbow twitches, you know that that's Muhammad Azaruddin rather than whoever it is, you know. And, and But now that there are numbers on the backs of the shirts, I think fantastic. <laughs> Absolutely great. It may have taken away one of the skills of a commentator, but I think that's great. You know what? We should have had names and numbers on shirts all along, for goodness sake. So, but uh, just for, for nostalgia, for nostalgia's sake, I uh, rest days. Um, I, I know. I know that they're a thing of the past, and they're never going to come back. But my career actually began when there were still rest days. South Africa's one-off Test match against the West Indies in Barbados in in '91. There was a rest day, which the South African team spent on the Jolly Roger, um, <laughs> and then lost the, when the game did resume on the fourth day. Um, and and long tour for proper tours. I mean, I look back at South Africa's tour of England in 1994. They played 14 first-class games. And my memories of that tour, apart from the Lords' success, uh, the great test match at, at Lords, and the, the three test matches were wonderful. But I've got so many memories of experiencing life around the country. And, you know, um, so so the, the long tour, the 10-week the tour, uh, it's gone. It's a relic. Um, I hanker after them. I'm nostalgic about it, but I I wouldn't bring it back. I'm actually pretty happy with the with the way the game's progressing. I'll keep mine brief because mine's kind of similar to yours, Manners. Um, I do miss the uh, the way that the pitch invasion used to happen, and you know, within a, a millisecond of the final wicket going, suddenly <laughs> all thirteen players had to, and the two umpires, had to essentially take their life in their hands to make their way off the pitch as quickly as possible. But I. One of the amazing things about Test cricket is just how vast a game it is. And I think that uh, with the three-day turnaround between Test matches, I've said this many times, firstly, it erodes the quality because it's impossible to to maintain those standards when you're playing essentially five days of te- 10 days of Test cricket inside 13 days at time. But it also robs the, pl- the paying public and the cricket lover the, the, the time to properly condense and compartmentalise and di- dissect the, the, the wondrous nature of Test cricket that's played over five days. You need more than three days to get your head around what you've just seen. I, I'd love to go back to the days of a Test match starting on a Thursday, finishing on a Monday, and then having to wait until a week Thursday until the next Test match. You know, it seemed to go on for an age when you were a kid, but uh, I would just love to go back to a day uh, where you could have a proper 10 days between Tests to properly get your head around what you've just seen. Okay, this is uh, this is going to be the last thing. 
um, in this week's uh, Cricket Collective. But uh, Manners, what's left in your bucket list of cricket experiences? Something that you've either never experienced or something that you hope to see happen again? South Africa in a World Cup final. <laughs> um, uh, that's it's got to happen at some point, surely. I'm not even you know not even winning it. I just just to see South Africa in a World Cup final. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing a proper World Test Championship, not the 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 clumsily compromised one that we're trying to trying to make work here. Um, but I, I, I tell you what, I do like complete collections. I do like complete sets of things. It, it really, really upsets me that, that two of my wisdoms from 1986 have mysteriously gone missing. Uh, that upsets me. And so, therefore, on my bucket list are test matches to, to either just to see or hopefully commentate on a test match in Ireland and a test match in Kabul. Well... Um, I've never seen cricket played in India, so uh, that uh, it's, it's quite obvious that that's going to be uh, on my bucket list. Uh, my dad was born in India. Uh, my love of the game possibly started with that first India side in 1982 with Maiden Lal. And uh, it just feels that there's a big hole in my life without uh, uh, watching the great game in the great country. What about you, Jared? Uh, Pakistan, they were the... You know, the, the team that sort of got me into international cricket, you know, copied Bushtak Ahmed's technique and absolutely loved that, that side of the late 80s, early 90s. You know, just a huge influence on me. And I've never covered cricket in, in Pakistan. Um, so I would love to go over there and watch a proper test series, you know, three tests. You know, I've had opportunities to go over for like one-off games and, you know, uh, charity games. and But that's... The, not what I want to do. I want to go there and cover it the way that I followed it as a kid, you know. Remember Pakistan, the TV coverage always looked dusty. Like they <laughs> they found a yeah. camera behind, you know, a bike shed um, and they plucked it up from too far away. I want to be there and see that in, in sort of real time, that sort of, you know, the Lahore atmosphere and, and follow it, especially now that I think they probably appreciate cricket more because it was taken away from them for such a long time. So I'd love to go back but when they play a really big team in a long series and, and, and discover Pakistan um, and, you know, the, 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 the team that I have always loved. Guys, that brings us to the end of the show. Um, thanks so much for your time. If there was one question that wasn't asked today that we can maybe cover in another show, can you think of one? Favourite delivery. Jared? Uh, free. Favourite cricket show? <laughs> Brilliant stuff. Go well, guys. Uh, loving your work, as ever. Uh, a big thanks to Jared and uh, also Manners and the producer, Scott Taylor, who somehow uh, got this uh, show on the road this week. Good luck editing it, Scott. Uh, we will be back, the Cricket Collective. I'm not sure who's going to be hosting, um, but uh, one of Jared, myself, Manners, maybe Barry Wilkinson, and a big thanks to him as well. Um, we'll be back. That's what the Cricket Collective is all about. You never know who's going to be hosting, who's going to be guesting, uh, but it'll always be about cricket. Thanks for listening. The following on podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. And this is your gentle reminder that Barbados is the best place to be a cricket fan. With eight matches from the ICC Men's T20 Cricket World Cup Series taking place in Barbados this summer, including the final, you can experience the summer of a lifetime by booking today. Aside from immersing in world-class cricket in the sunshine, Barbados is the dream destination for all travel enthusiasts. It is where adventure meets paradise, 
the culinary capital of the Caribbean, and better still, the birthplace of rum. If you're keen to unite with cricket fans across the globe for what is set to be an unforgettable summer, then head to visitbarbados.org forward slash cricket today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 